morning. There we go. Ooh, sorry. Didn't turn it on. Fantastic. Let's ask for God's help um, as we come to uh, look at these words together. Father God, thank you for uh, the passage uh, that we're looking at now. Thank you for the book of Luke, written that we may have certainty into the things that we've been taught about the Lord Jesus. Father, please give us that certainty in him, greater certainty in him this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, the Samaritans, uh, you've probably heard of them, uh, doing a great work providing uh, somebody to talk to for those who are feeling suicidal. It's not a, a Christian organization, although it was established by a vicar. Um, the, the name actually was coined by the Daily Mirror newspaper, um, who wrote, Telephone the Good Samaritan. Or you probably saw the, the tragic news last month of um, Chris Marriott. Chris Marriott, who was giving first aid to a woman lying unconscious in the street uh, when he was hit by a car. It describes in, in all the news articles afterwards as a good Samaritan. The, the phrase comes from the passage that we're looking at this morning. Now, Jesus doesn't actually use the, the words Good Samaritan, but that's the summary that people have applied to it. It's one of Jesus' most famous parables, if not the most. But I would also suggest that it is one of the most misunderstood parables. Uh, I was looking up, trying to find Chris Marriott's name. I, I knew the story, I didn't know his name. Um, so I was typing it into the BBC and actually came across the BBC Bite Size, um, you know, their BBC's educational um, part of their websites. Uh, and they have a section on the Good Samaritan. Uh, and their understanding is Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan to explain that people should love everyone, including their enemies. That's the BBC. Um, now, Christians ha Christian teachers would obviously add a lot more nuance to that. But I would say probably the general, general view is that Jesus tells this story of a man who selflessly and sacrificially served someone who most people would avoid. And he did so so that we as Christians should love all those around us. And then therefore the, the, the jump that is then taken is that we as Christians individually and as churches together should therefore be actively seeking to find people in need that we would therefore be able to meet those physical needs. And you can understand why this is the general take on it. Um, after all, doesn't Jesus end, right at the end of this section, verse 37, you go and do likewise. Go and be like the Good Samaritan. Go and do likewise. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that that's not actually what the, this parable is about and what this section is about. It's actually about something far bigger, far more important. Now, people's physical needs are important things, and yet what this is about is bigger and more important than people's physical well-being. And actually, I, I think the, to, to see this, we only have to apply a one one principle for handling the Bible rightly, perhaps the principle for how to help us understand God's word rightly is the principle that context is king. So the, the context in which something occurs help us to understand what it means. And if we apply that tool here to this parable, 
well, then we'll find out what is really going on. Could you just have the first slide up? Sorry, I forgot to get my remote ready. I'll get that. Thank you. And to, and to do this, we, we really see um, what is the issue that Jesus is addressing here? In this passage, what is the topic? Uh, the issue is eternal life. Or particularly, how do I get eternal life? Just have a look at verse 25, right at the beginning. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus, him, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is the issue. This is the topic that Jesus is addressing in this passage. How can we have eternal life? And in fact, there's, there's no bigger question than that. And this week, I was visiting um, somebody in hospital. Um, and every time I visit a hospital, and it, you might have experienced this, it is a tangible reminder for the fragility and the shortness of life. A couple of weeks ago, Mark really helpfully well, helped us to look at Psalm 90, where that was enforced so much, wasn't it? The fragility of our lives, in, particularly in relationship to the eternal God. But the, the message of the Bible, the, the message that Jesus came to preach is that there is more to simply our days on this earth. There is much more. We saw it last week. Didn't we? Do you remember if you were here? Where, where did Jesus say we should find our joy last week? Verse 20. So chapter 10, verse 20. Nevertheless, he says to his disciples, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Those Jesus saves, he brings into relationship with himself now. And that relationship that we enjoy with him now spans for all eternity in heaven and in the new creation. But how does that happen? How can we have that eternal life? That is the question that Jesus is addressing in our passage. If you're, if you're taking notes, you've got the hand out there, may I underline it, circle it, do something with it. If you're not, just keep it in your minds. The question that Jesus is addressing through these verses is how do I get eternal life? Now, it's a great question to ask, but we actually see that the questioner wasn't asking it genuinely. And indeed, the, the question reveals much about the questioner. So here, we, we, firstly, we've seen that his first revealing question. His question is, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the man is a lawyer, uh, not of the judicial system. He is an expert in God's law. Today, we might, perhaps might say he, he's a, a, a biblical scholar or a theologian. And alongside the Pharisees and uh, the scribes, um, he is one of the religious establishment, one of the religious elite. But even as he's introduced, we're, we're probably going to be a little bit cautious. Because, um, have a look back to verse 21. So again, just before what we're looking at here, Jesus rejoices in the fact that God has revealed salvation to the little children to the insignificance, and has hidden it from the wise and understanding 
And then just a couple of verses later, well, here is an example of the wise and the understanding. One of their lawyers. And our caution is confirmed immediately, isn't it? Because we're, we're told of his motivation. Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, he is not the first person in Luke's gospel to put Jesus to the test. Back in chapter 4, in the wilderness, Satan puts Jesus to the test. Here he is trying to catch Jesus out. His motives are not good. And so Luke warns us that he's not up to any good. But, but the question itself reveals more. It reveals really what he thinks of the matter. You see, you look, look closely. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's got himself in a bit of a muddle there. Has he not? Because we know you don't do anything to get an inheritance. Inheritance is something that is given to you. And yet he is asking, what must, you, what must I do to get this inheritance? It shows us <coughs> Excuse me. This question reveals his, his understanding and his attitude. He is looking for what he can do because he believes he can do it. He's proud. Now, before we look at um, the, his second question, let's firstly look at Jesus' response. Um, there we go. Uh, oh, no. Sorry, Benjamin. Can we go back one? Thanks. Um, Jesus uh, responds to this question um, and, and exposes the questioner. Like he so often does, Jesus answers a question with a question of his own. So verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And oh, the lawyer would have been thrilled this is his area of, the ex of expertise. This is in, he's in his happy place talking about the law. And he gives what would have been the classic orthodox Sunday school answer. Verse 27. And he answered, here quoting Deuteronomy 6, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Then quoting Leviticus 19, and your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus agrees. Verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Indeed, actually, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself uses this kind of description as a summary of all of the Old Testament law. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Mr. Lawyer, you have got it spot on. And so Jesus concludes, the end of verse 28, do this and you will live. If you love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you will have eternal life. But what any genuine inquirer would be doing now is thinking, 
Well, yikes. Have I done that? Am I able to do that? And surely it wouldn't take anyone long to conclude that the answer is no. No, I've not done that. I've not even done that this morning. Let alone for all of my life. I've not loved God with everything I've got. So often I've loved things that he gives us more than I've loved him. And though I've not loved my neighbor as myself, not even this morning. I've been selfish, I've been short-tempered, I've been impatient. No, I've not done that. And no, I can't do that. What makes me think that I'm going to be any better tomorrow than I was today? That's the genuine questioner, and their, their genuine question is response to that. But the lawyer's next question, it should therefore be, how can I get eternal life when I've not loved God with everything I've got? And I've not loved neighbor as myself. But again, his, his, the question he, he asks gives us insight into his thinking. Verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself. Desiring to justify himself. To justify means to um, be right in God's eyes. To be righteous in God's sight. Now, in one sense, in the first instance, he's trying to justify himself, and he's trying to save face. He's like, okay, well, oh, yeah, yeah, but, well, let me, let, me, let me be clever again. But actually, the choice of words is revealing. Because it shows, again, his attitude of, I want to do this my, myself. I think I can do this myself. I want to make myself right before God. And so this, this question, again, reveals more. Um, Let's look at it at the end of verse 29. He says, well, and who is my neighbor? I've gone to the next one, so my phone's blown up a bit. Thank you. Oh, great. Thank you. Who is my neighbor? Look, if you think that the, the way to be right with God and to have eternal life is by what you do, then you have to do one or both of the two things. Either you have to vastly inflate your own abilities to the extent where you can overlook all of your flaws and think that, yes, I am good enough to meet God's perfect standards. Or, or and or, but this is what the, the lawyer does, you have to reduce God's requirements to a level to whereby you think you can meet them. And so that's what the man does here. I mean, did he think he'd crack the love God part? I don't know. Or, or did he kind of want to focus more on the perhaps more visible side of things, which the religious leaders love to do? Well, either way, he, he seeks to reduce God's requirements of love your neighbor as yourself by asking the question, well, who is my neighbor? Okay, if I've got to love my neighbor as myself, how tightly can I draw that circle? Who are those that I've got to love? Okay, probably my family. They'd be in there. My geographical neighbors. Maybe they'd be in there. As an Israelite, okay, perhaps his tribe, they would be in there. Is all Israel in there? He wants a definition. 
by saying, well, who is my neighbor? Who do I need to love? And what he's getting at is, well, who don't I need to love? Who's outside of that? You see, this reveal, this question reveals that legalist attitude. I'm going to minimize the requirements to whereby my inflated sense of ability means I think I'll be able to keep it. And once again, Jesus exposes the man in his response. And he does so by teaching the parable of the Good Samaritan. And once again, Jesus here is exposing the man's inability to meet God's requirements. But not just his inability, his his lack of desire to actually do so. So rather than simply answer the man's question with a, like a worded definition, well, your neighbor is X, Y, and Z, he paints this vivid picture with a parable. And it's a scene that his first hearers would have been very familiar with. There was a man, and he's walking down the path from Jerusalem to Jericho. All right, Jerusalem up on a hill, walking down. It's about a 17-mile path, meandered down, and it was known to be dangerous. There were kind of caves and crevices where uh, robbers were known to hide and then jump out and steal from you. You know, it's a little bit, if I began a story by saying a man walked into a dark alley in a dodgy part of town, you'd be like, something bad's going to happen. Well, well, that's what they would have been hearing. And sure enough, just as they were expecting, a man was set upon. Robbers stripped him, beat him, ran off, uh, ran off, leaving him half dead. And this is where the story gets interesting. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. Can you believe it? What a stroke of luck. If you'd been robbed and beaten, who would you want to come past on those days but a priest? Fantastic. What a, by chance, what a bit of good luck. But, verse 31 goes on. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. (coughs) Verse 32, the same was for a Levite. Levites were a little bit like the priest's assistants. Um, Well, verse 32, likewise, a a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Oh, it's taken a bit of a turn, hasn't it? Jesus doesn't tell us why. Was it they were simply in a rush? Were they worried about the risk of stopping? I mean, certainly somebody half dead by the side of the road shows this is not a safe place to be. But were they worried about the risk? Did they think he was actually dead already? And as a priest or a Levite, to touch a dead person would have made them ceremonially unclean? Didn't, I didn't know who it was. Did they have an obligation to stop and help this person? We, we don't know. But whatever it was, as they crossed the road, and carried on their way. And then here comes the surprise. A Samaritan comes by. As I said before, Jesus doesn't call him a good Samaritan. and Because for the Jews, good Samaritan would have been a contradiction in terms. There weren't good Samaritans. Okay, the Samaritans were people who um, historically had intermarried with other nations. And they turn their backs on the true faith, the true religion. If you were here last week, you remember Samaritans were people that you hoped fire would rain down from heaven on them. That was the attitude. And the feeling would have been mutual. And yet this Samaritan, he doesn't cross the road. He stops. And as we see at the end of verse 33, he had compassion. 
and save. Verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. A wonderful sign of, of costly, um, wholehearted love and care for this man. The lawyer's question is, look, who is my neighbor? And he's trying to limit it, make it as small as possible. But then after telling the parable, Jesus asks a question of his own. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? the man who fell among the robbers. You see the difference in those questions. The man said, who is my neighbor? Jesus is basically saying, who can you be a neighbor to? Who can you be a neighbor to? Which one proved to be a neighbor? And the man can't even bring himself to say the name Samaritan, verse 37. He said, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus exposes the fact that not only can the lawyer not love neighbor, he he doesn't want to. And so he says at the end of verse 37, well, you go and do likewise. Jesus is probing. He's probing in, well, go and do the same. And just like that first question, Jesus is challenging him here. He's saying, look, Are you able and willing to love like that? Are you prepared to love people when it is costly to yourself? When it inconveniences you? When it's risky? Are you prepared to love people extravagantly? And are you prepared to love people who are different from you? Who who you don't really like? you might consider even to be an enemy. Are you going to love them like that too? Jesus is challenging him. He's trying to get him to say, look, are you sure you want to depend on your, your own obedience? Are you sure you want to try and justify yourself? Or are you ready to admit that you can't do this? And so just for a moment, can I, can I pause and, and to clarify why Jesus didn't tell the, good, the parable of the Good Samaritan to explain that people should love everyone, including their enemies. And why this, this passage isn't teaching that Christians individually in churches should go out to seek and find peoples with physical needs and see how we can meet them. The first thing is the context. The issue, what is the issue that Jesus is addressing here? How can I inherit eternal life? If you just started, if we, all we had was from probably the middle of verse 29 down to verse 37, then I could say, well, yeah, okay, I can see why this would be teaching us who our neighbours is and are and how we can love them. But it doesn't. This is all part of that same conversation. Secondly, who is Jesus speaking to in verse 37 when he says, go and do likewise? He is not speaking to one of his disciples. He is speaking to a non-Christian who needs to be converted. 
which then lead up and build to the third and most important thing, really, is what was Jesus' intention in these words? And to do that, let's just think of two things. Firstly, did you notice the structure of these two halves of the conversation? The lawyer asks a question. Jesus responds and asks a question of his own. And then Jesus probes and pokes the lawyer, saying, can you really do that? That's what he did in the first one. Okay, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you think the law, law says? Well, go and do it. And then we see the second half follows that exact same pattern. The man asks a question, who is my neighbor? Jesus does more this time. He gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, but then asks the question, which, which one was the neighbor? And then finishes with a probing question again. We, we see Jesus is graciously, in the first half definitely, and I would say also in the second half, is trying to show that the lawyer can't meet God's perfect standard, that he couldn't do enough. And it would be really strange for Jesus to wrap up this conversation by, in a sense, undermining everything he'd said. It would be really odd for Jesus to be highlighting, you can't do it. You can't do it. In fact, you don't even want to do it. And then his big conclusion, go and do it. That doesn't make sense. Jesus' concern is for his salvation, how the man can be saved, not how he can live a good life. Now, as Christians, should we love all people? Yes. Yes, of course we could, should. Should we love sacrificially and wholeheartedly and in a costly way? Yes, of course we should. It's just not the application from this passage. This passage is not telling us to love others. It's telling us that we can't. Not enough, not well enough. We never could. You see, we, we have people, people who we would much rather exclude from being our neighbor. There are people we'd actually try, rather not have to love. And yet we fail also to be a good neighbor to those who we really even have. And our love has limits. And even with the best of intentions, we could never love like this to all people. We'd be exhausted by their problems and we'd end up resenting them. This passage is telling us how we can get eternal life. And the mission of the church is to explain to people how they can get eternal life. We need a good Samaritan ourselves. That's the purpose of, of this passage, is to show us that we can't do it enough ourselves, and in fact, we need a good Samaritan. Because when we look at the parable again through these eyes, we see that, yes, perhaps we're not only meant to see ourselves in the three passers-by, but we're also to see ourselves as the man who's walking down the path and robbed and beaten. Because we see ourselves there spiritually beaten up spiritually helpless, spiritually not only half dead, fully dead. We were very much in need of a good Samaritan. And Jesus, in Jesus, we have the one who was the ultimate neighbor. We saw the good Samaritan, that he had compassion. Well, once again, we saw that word once before in Luke's gospel. <coughs> and it was described of Jesus when he came across a widow in name. 
saw her and he had compassion, gut-wrenching, moved to, to act. And Jesus, where is he? He's on his way to go to Jerusalem, we saw last week. He's on his way to save. Jesus taught what it means to be a good neighbor because he ultimately was the good neighbor. He was the one who lived, uh, who loved extravagantly and sacrificially, paying the ultimate cost of giving up his life. And indeed, it's only once we truly understand that, that that we'll be able to love others as we should. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question here. And the answer that Jesus is graciously trying to show this man is that you need the starting point is to admit that you can't. You can't do it yourself. You're not able to love God with everything you have. You don't love your neighbors as yourself. First thing we need to admit is that we can't do that and we need a good Samaritan. We need to be rescued and saved. And so we come to Jesus and call on him for forgiveness for those times when we haven't loved God as we should and we haven't loved neighbors as ourselves. We call out for forgiveness and for eternal life. But that's why Jesus came. He came to save those who don't love God perfectly and who don't love neighbor perfectly. That's why Jesus came. That's how we can have eternal life. And that is the message that we hold out to those around us. We want to share with people, how can you have eternal life? You need Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus came as the Good Samaritan. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your love, for your compassion, for your um, sacrifice, that you came to save those who were in desperate need of mercy. Father, we want to acknowledge before you that we haven't loved you as we should. We haven't loved our neighbours as we should. We ask for your forgiveness and grace and mercy and compassion. Thank you that because of Jesus, yet despite being guilty, we can still have eternal life. Please would we cling to Jesus ourselves and hold him out to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.